episode 88, Mr. Klopp. Two mm-hmm. middle-aged men in Cleveland. I mean, there's one person I think of with the number 88. Uh, that would be Reggie Langhorn. There is, is that no who you other. think of? Yeah. I think Har- didn't Harrison Bryant wear that number two? Yeah, he were, I was just gonna say it sure isn't Harrison Bryant yet, but yeah, you know, maybe at some point. Yeah. But yeah, it's gotta be gotta be Reggie Langhorn. God, isn't it nice to have the sun out? Oh. Isn't it nice to have warm weather? I drove around a little bit today before we had the chance to get together and Holy cow. I mean, 70 degrees felt like a hundred, but it felt amazing. A whole yeah. weekend like that. So. Yeah. Interesting. Finally, spring finally arrives in early May. <laughs> I just, I'm hoping for a day without rain. This I mean, we've is... gone two consecutive now, and which has been amazing. But my, my gosh, this weekend before on Friday, it rained entire day. The entire day. It, rained. it feels like we went from winter Right to, right to, I mean, I don't know how long this will last. I guess we'll have yeah. to wait and see, but it seems like we kind of sp- skipped spring, maybe. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. It's crazy. How did you celebrate Mother's Day? Anything good? Oh, we just had my, uh, my parents over in the fine town of Rocky River with my brother and uh, his, his uh, wife. It was nice. We just did some brunch. Obviously, I didn't make it, so that's why everyone was able to eat. And then we got sick. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I did that. And then in the evening as a Mother's Day gift, to Eowyn, uh, we played golf. Played so, golf. Yeah. Who won? Yep. Well, as I mentioned, Ted, it's getting closer. Um, oh, yeah. I only won by two strokes at Bobble Links oh. this time. So oh, soon enough, it's going to happen because I, I just have those blow up days. She's so, getting good, huh? She, she is really playing very consistent golf. And as anyone that's a golfer, that's huge. Now, before we get to my Mother's Day or my celebration of Mother's Day on Saturday, I was unable to be there, but I believe there was a little bachelor party of sorts for the soon to be married. There was a quasi bachelor party. Um, I played some golf at Shell Creek with uh, actually three guys that have been on this podcast. My brother, uh, Mr. Brian Forgotch and Justin Winkler. We had a really nice day. How we were able to play after all the rain that happened on Friday is absolutely amazing. I think Shell Creek may be one of the best courses when it comes to drainage, because there was a little bit of water, but enough that we can play. And then we uh, went to a couple different places. Um, Aaron Wirtz, whose place is Planted Flag, we actually went there. And then went, and this will be on my out and about segment, went to a place called Herman's in Brunswick. Mm. So really cool place. We actually watched the Kentucky Derby, which I don't really want to talk about that. That's that's not one thing we're going to talk about. But <laughs> No, it was a nice time. Just nice to get together a bunch of different people. I'm sorry you were not there, but I know you had other things you were working on. And I think you had something that was really cool for your family this past Sunday. Yes, we not only did we celebrate Mother's Day on Sunday, but my youngest son had his first communion. That's cool. Big day for him. He was very excited and exciting for us because unlike some previous liturgical events we made it to the church on time (laughs) i don't want to mention any events like a wedding or names like greg gale but you know we just um so yeah we got there in plenty of time and uh everything went well he was very excited you know very um he's very quiet wants to make sure he does the right thing and goes in the right spot he got to there were three first communicants at that particular service. 
and he got to carry up the wine for the gifts. And oh, that's uh, cool. so he was very excited about that. There were two parts of the service that were uh, uh, memorable. I'm not sure in a good way. The first one would be, so everybody comes up and the priest goes up on the altar and goes over to the side and the first communicants go over in front of the altar. And we have a large baptismal font. Like it's a, almost, it's like a wading pool. It's that big. Yeah. And so the first communicants are supposed to dip their hand in and bless themselves. And the priest gets down on his knees, sits down to bless himself. And then the priest goes to stand up and he stands up on his robe. Oh no. And down he goes. Oh, oh didn't no. hurt himself, but the Padre was rolling around on the altar for a few seconds there. Oh and, man. Oh yeah. And then later in the uh, service, when we're, so we're up on the altar for first communion and the priest has done all the uh, prayers and everything, and we're standing there. And he goes over. They have um, uh, sanitizer for the priest to use before he hands out for uh, hands out communion. So he uses the hand sanitizer, and then he takes his sleeve and goes right across his nose with the whole robe and the sleeve. And I said something like, oh, my goodness, under my breath. And my wife hears me and says, yeah, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do. That's right. So uh, so those were the two, aside from the very exciting opportunity to see my youngest son get his first communion. Those were the first. Those were the other two items. We went and celebrated at the Hofbra House with some adult yes. beverages and uh, some German food, which was very exciting. And then it all came crashing down at the end of the night because my son was very sad because, as he put it, the best day of his life was over. Oh, that's <laughs> so we had nice. to deal with that. And uh, my way to deal with it was to put on a Disney song. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. There you go. So that that's was outstanding. Uh, you guys look great. I saw some of your pictures from the event. You guys yeah. you took some really nice Family photos, man. Everybody dresses you. up really good. You guys look great. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, we cleaned up all right. We cleaned up all right. It worked out well. The two older kids wore uh, bow ties, which I think they always look good in. And yeah. my wife got our youngest son a special, uh, I guess, first communion tie. It had, a, you know, the yeah. Eucharist on it. So that was really neat. That's so, cool. Yeah. Cool. So good good times this weekend. Hope everybody else had a, uh, a good uh, for, uh, uh, Mother's Day. And we're going to move along now with uh, what's coming up on the show. And Ken, what's coming up is a new segment. It's called Sports Talk. Yes. We're going to spend a few minutes with a special guest, and we're going to talk about one of the big stories in Cleveland sports. We'll do this every so often and, uh, you know, see how it goes. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of Cleveland sports, our Cleveland sports historian, Dusty Sloan, here to talk some baseball. Uh, we'll also learn about one of the tallest buildings in Cleveland, 200 Public Square. We've got Klopp's Clips with a Roman relic that's about 2,000 years old that wound up in a goodwill. And we've got a misspeak of the week, not from Joe Biden, but from the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Oh, no, not a dad joke. A ham sandwich walks into a bar and orders a beer. Yeah. The bartender says, sorry, we don't serve food here. That joke was horrible. 
Theodore, time for some good news. The realistic video game called Call of Duty was launched in 2003 and is now the best-selling game of its kind. The charity work done by the game is also deserving of a high ranking. Last month, the Call of Duty endowment reached its goal of placing 100,000 veterans into meaningful employment two years ahead of schedule. Wow. Because of this and the start of Military Appreciation Month, Activision Blizzard, makers of the game, have committed to an additional $30 million in funding to support the program moving forward. That is some huge numbers. My gosh, that's awesome. You can't get any better than that. No. And I know that's such a popular game, and I know many people have been playing that for years. I had no idea that they had an endowment or doing so many things to help place veterans, you know, certainly into employment, but $30 million in funding to support the program moving forward. That, that is, that's something that's moving the needle. That is really, really great stuff. Blah, 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 blah. Today's guest has been an author for over 30 years and has published 65 books. The Cleveland native has a new book that will be released in August, which is part of a murder series called Love is Murder. Many of our listeners may have read one of her books under a different pen name. Our guest has published books using 10 different pen names. Our guest has written, has wrote books dipping into mysteries, romances, and different adventures. She studied English literature at Queens College in Oxford, England, and currently resides in Brooksville. Let's talk with Connie Laux. Connie, thank you so much for joining us today. This is an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And hello, Ken, Ted, and all your listeners. Thank you. So, so many questions to ask in a short amount of time. But first of all, let's talk about how you started writing 30 years ago with your first book, Twilight Secrets. Talk about what inspired you to write this book and which led to 30 years of writing and publishing 65 books. Well, I had, well, I was an English major in college, number one. And there's not a whole lot you can do with an English major unless you're going to teach. So um, when I was working full time, I was doing business writing, speeches for executives and employee newsletters and things like that. But when my kids were born and I retired to take care of them, I decided to try my hand at fiction writing. And my the first book that I have published, as you mentioned, was Twilight Secrets, which was a historical romance. And I had no intention when I started out of writing historical romance. I just had an idea for a story. And the more I looked into the market, I realized what the publishing world was calling what I was writing, historical romance. So that's what I ended up starting out with. Uh, The whole time I was writing romance, and I did, oh gosh, uh, maybe 20, let's say, Uh, What I was reading, though, was mysteries. I like mysteries. I like the twists and the turns and the plots. And I like that the reader gets fooled by the clever author. Um, But I was absolutely convinced that I wasn't smart enough to write a mystery. So um, it took a long time to wrap my head around that. It was also tough at the time because if you would go into a bookstore, remember bookstores when there used to be bookstores you could walk into, um, and you'd look at the shelves in a bookstore or a library, and you'd look at the mysteries, and you'd see the, the big thing at the time was 
a heroine or an amateur detective, hero or heroine, who had a very specific job. So you'd have a heroine who was a landscape architect or a chef or was an expert at getting stains out of fabric, you know, whatever that little specialty was. And I could never think of anything clever enough for my detective to be, or if I thought of something, um, another detective was already doing it. So one of the other things I like to do is hang around cemeteries. I love old cemeteries. I love the history. I love the art and the architecture. Uh, if anyone is familiar with the Cleveland area, they know Lakeview Cemetery, which is the, the nirvana of cemeteries around here. And I interviewed for a part-time job there as a tour guide. Didn't get the job, but I did get an idea for a detective heroine who hadn't been used yet. And she was a, a cemetery tour guide. So that's the first mystery I wrote it was called The Dawn of the Dead. I wrote that under the name of Casey Daniels. It's set in an old cemetery in Cleveland. And my heroine investigates mysteries for the ghosts in the cemetery. So that's what kicked me over to the to the mystery side of things. <laughs> well, Connie, I'm curious, 10 different pen names. Why 10 different pen names and where did you come up with them? My husband says it's because I have 10 different social security numbers. That is not true. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that on the record. You know, it pretty much depends on what I'm writing. So, for instance, the books I just talked about, the Cleveland Cemetery with Ghosts in them, I wrote as Casey Daniels. And then a few years later, I got an idea for a straight mystery. No ghosts. Actually, it was... Uh, the heroine in that mystery owns an antique button store. Love old buttons. So my publisher was afraid if people saw the Casey Daniels name on the front of that book, they would be expecting ghosts in the book. So that's how I became Kylie Logan. I have two other series out at the moment. I have all kinds of series out at the moment. But um, one of them is the Haunted Mansion mysteries that I write as Lucy Ness. And the other, I think Ken mentioned at the beginning, is the Love and Love is Murder Mysteries. Those are set in a romance bookstore, going back to my romance roots. And I write those as Mimi Granger. So it all depends on the tone of the book, the kind of book I'm writing, uh, who's publishing it, because certain publishers will say, yeah, great, let's use a pen name. So it, it, it's, it's fun to be different people. Understand that, I, and I appreciate you talking about the series. I was going to ask you about the, the called the Love Is Murder series, but I'll dip into a different question here. Um, so you've put together a bunch of different books that are in a series, and obviously for our listeners, many of which are not writers, and so maybe they don't understand this as well as Ted and myself. So talk about when you put together a book series as opposed to an individual book. Is this something you have to plan out completely? Or do you just kind of write each book and come up with ideas later for the series? How, how does that whole thing work? Well, it's kind of tough, especially these days, because like everything else in this world now, publishing is pretty upside down. So you really can't say, OK, I'm going to start this mystery series 
And in book one, this will happen. And in book two, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if she went to Paris? And in book three and in book four, because you don't know how long a series is going to last. Ah, you okay. really sure don't. You know how many books are in a contract. Sure. So you may have a contract for two or three books and you can, you know, you have that much time to play with. But beyond that, you never know. So it, it makes it kind of tricky because often after a series has ended, I'll get emails from readers saying, wait, 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 what about Jazz and Nick? What's going to happen? I want to know. And you have to say, sorry, there's no more books. Now, that is usually not the author's decision as much as it is the publisher's decision. So, um yeah, I always, when you go to writers' conferences and writers always say, how do you plan the arc of your series? I don't know. Um, you know, like I said, I may be able to do two or three books at a time, but after that, it's a wing and a prayer. So so you, uh, you get emails from people and they say, what happened to Susie and Bobby? You're familiar with the movie Misery ever? Uh, <clears throat> well, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, all no, right. Oh, no, no. Well, let's uh, we'll, 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 we'll avoid that one. Um, so romance novels, mysteries, adventure books, very different, some different genres there. Do you have one that you enjoy writing in the most or a specific book that you enjoyed writing more than the others? I like mysteries the best. Like I said, it, it was what I always read anyway. Uh, mysteries are great fun. Now they take a whole lot of planning because obviously it's got to make sense at the end. And so I'm a, I'm an outliner. A lot of writers aren't. Um, in, in writer talk, we call them the plotters and the pantsters. The plotters work on an outline. The pantsters write by the seat of their pants. Uh, I am not a pantser. I have to outline. I just finished outlining the book I'm working on now. And it took me five weeks to outline. I want to know what's going to happen because at the end of that mystery, it better make a whole lot of sense. And you better tie up all the loose ends and figure out how Aunt Sally killed Uncle Bill, you know. Um, so it, it takes some plotting. But I still do really enjoy the mysteries. As for the books I enjoy writing the most, I have to I have to admit, uh, next February, I'm going to have a new book out under a new name, guys. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and what name, name will, what name will that be? That name will be Anastasia Hastings. Anastasia Hastings writes historical mysteries. Okay. And the first one will be out in February, and I'm working on the second one, and I've had a ball with these. Um, they're set in Victorian England. My heroine is what's called an agony aunt, if, if you know that term. Basically, Ann Landers. You know, people okay. would write in and, and tell you their problems. And these agony aunts would, would handle their problems in newspapers or magazines. And there were tons of them. It was a huge thing back then. And so I have a heroine who's an agony aunt. And I get to dive into history, which I really like. So uh, that's, it's all good. It's fun. That's very exciting. I was going to ask you, that was going to be my next question. You know, talk about projects coming up. Any others besides what you just talked about that that's you want to talk right about? Now, uh, just because these are sort of all encompassing. They're gotcha. big books. Um, 
by that I mean there's more than one point of view. It's coming out in hardcover. It's history. It's bigger. Um, so there's a lot of research that goes into it, which again is fun. I enjoy research, but you also find, you know, twice a sentence you're going, okay, she's walking through a room. Uh, what kind of rugs are on the floor? What kind of furniture is there? What kind of shoes is she wearing? So there's just a lot to, to dive into and to consider. A lot of detail. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Connie, thank you so much for the time. Um, if people want to purchase your books or they want to find out more information about you and your books, where can they go to do this? The easiest place to look is my website. All of me is on there. All the me's. Um, and that address is www.mystery-series. Oh, nope, taking it back. www.mystery-book-series.com. All my books are on there. All the names are on there. There are buy links on there. But you can buy the books in all the usual places, online and local. Find bookstores everywhere. Well, Connie, thank you so much. It is so outstanding. Congratulations on all your success. And we look forward to hearing more about some of the projects you have in your latest series. So thank you again and, and all the best to you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Miss Speak of the Week now, former President Donald Trump spoke to a crowd in Nebraska in support of Charles Herbster. He's a candidate for governor of Nebraska. During his speech, he talked about some of his other endorsements, including the one in Ohio that he made for the Republican U.S. Senate primary race between Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance. Here's what Trump said about that. We've endorsed J.P., right? J.D. Mandel, and he's doing great. They're all doing good. JP, JD, Mandel, Vance. Do we really know who he's endorsing here? He just combined the two names to come up with JD Mandel. We've endorsed Love it. JP, right? JD Mandel, and he's doing great. They're all doing good. Yeah. Even even the ones that you know the names of. I hope everybody took the time to vote last Tuesday. By the way, J.D. Vance did win the Republican primary over Josh Mandel for the U.S. Senate. Yeah, that is the misspeak of the week. Cleveland! This is for you! Time for another edition of Cleveland Sports History. That means one thing. That'll bring in Dusty Sloan our Cleveland sports historian. Dusty, we have an interesting one for you to talk about today. This goes back to 1994. Let's say you would be a junior in high school. I would be a senior, and that makes Ted six years out of college, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> but on May 13th, 1994, the Cleveland Indians start an 18-game home winning streak at newly opened Jacobs Field. Dusty, talk about the beginning of Jacobs Field and that obviously outstanding 18 game home winning streak. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you said, 17 years old, they're opening up this brand new ballpark. I remember uh, sitting in one of my high school classes and the teacher let's watch the very first game at Jacobs field against Randy Johnson. We all remember what happened there, but then yeah, about a month later, they started an 18 game home winning streak. You look at the box score of that game. 
And the interesting thing about it is not only did it start a home winning streak and really started what was the glory days of the Indians in the mid and late 90s. You look at the lineup and it had Lofton and Bayerga and Bell and Manny and Tomey and all that. But you look at this box score from that day on May 13th, and it's a very rare occurrence, maybe something that might never happen again in Major League Baseball. Both pitchers threw a complete game. (laughs) That will never happen again. And that was only 28 years ago. Mark Clark was the winning pitcher for the Indians. And Tim Belcher was the loser, and that dropped him to 0-7. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Tim Belcher. Dusty, the the Indians and, well, the Guardians haven't really been around long enough yet, but the Indians certainly enjoyed um, several winning streaks at Jacobs Field and then Progressive Field. Uh, That ballpark has been very kind to them over the years with several streaks, uh, winning streaks. Not too many losing streaks, though. No, but particularly in the early days, like we said, from like 94 to 99, that those were the days the John Hart teams and the Mike Hargrove teams. And, and it was just win after win after win. And so many late wins. You remember all the great comebacks that the Indians had back then. And you would just love to see the team kind of get back to that. But as of right, as of right now, the guardians aren't doing that. No, it's a bit of a struggle, but uh, long season, as they say, well, one last question, Dusty, as we talk about this 18-game home winning streak. You know, it, we, we talked about the, the crazy lineup that the uh, certainly at the time the Indians had. But can you talk a little bit? I mean, their pitching staff, you know, obviously you mentioned Mark Clark and Ian Wood. Their pitching staff was pretty doggone good. And I think that gets overlooked. It absolutely does. And th- those days, obviously, when you have guys that can prodigiously hit the ball like Albert Bell did, of course, it's going to get overlooked. But remember, that was the first year the Indians had signed Dennis Martinez, and he was the ace at age 40 years old. And you obviously had Charlie Nagy. It was the year before the Indians signed Oral Hershiser. And we all remember what happened with 94. It got cut short because of the labor stoppage. But the, the other interesting thing is Mark Clark was 11-3 and three that year. Jason Grimsley was 5-2 and two when he wasn't hiding cork bats. Um <laughs> Jack Morris was 39 years old and we got 10 wins out of him. So it, it, it was, it was an interesting set of characters there in 94. And it would have been fascinating to see how they would have finished had the strike not happened. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Mm. Mm. Well, Dusty, once again, thanks for the time. What a great way to go back to talk about May 13th, 1994, the Cleveland Indians starting an 18 game winning streak. Dusty, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate it guys. Cleveland! This is for you! All right, time for a new segment with an old friend. We have Sherry Russo back with us. We're not going to debate today as much as discuss or... Maybe it is a debate. I don't know. We're going to talk some sports because obviously Ken and I are big sports fans and Sherry is a uh, big Cleveland sports fan and uh, we figured perhaps a... uh, a little female uh, opinion might uh, be interesting to hear because you don't hear that too often. So, Sherry, today we're going to talk about Baker Mayfield, the the one-time starting quarterback of your Cleveland Browns. Yes. And the topic today, very simple, what should the Browns do with Baker Mayfield? Now, this is not what will they do or what I want them to do. This is what should they do. So, 
Go ahead, Sherry. What are your, uh, what are you thinking here now? We got the great Deshaun Watson and he's going to come in and save the franchise. <laughs> you know how many times we've heard that someone's going to come in and save the franchise? That's well, laughable. Ken, how many starting <laughs> quarterbacks have there been? I, what are we up to like 24 now or something like that? That's how many like times that, we've heard. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Oh, yep. it's, an, it's unbelievable. But um, well, what should they do is kind of a loaded question because what should they do? I mean, that could be what I dream they would do or what outcome would happen that can't happen. So I can't, I don't know that, I don't know that what I'm going to say is what should they do? Here's what I think is the only option at this point. Only option. The only, they have to cut him. If I mean, <laughs> because no one's going to trade for him. Because they know they have to cut him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so why don't, and I'll let Ken hop in here, but so just to play devil's advocate, why not? Because they would just have to eat that salary. Why not just sit him, put him on the inactive list? I suppose they could do that, but, and, and I, since I don't live in Cleveland anymore, I don't get all the news and all the details every day like you guys do, but what I heard was that he basically said he was going to not show up. So if that's the case, <laughs> then what's the point? I agree. Um, Sherry, bring up some good points. This is a really interesting situation. What I think is going to happen is that he's going to sit on the roster and their Browns are basically going to sit there and wait for a team to lose one of their starters. Yep. The best thing that they mm. can do is just sit and wait. I agree. He, he will not see anything of the facility, even if he's on the roster. He will be paid to go work out somewhere or anything like that. They'll set up a deal. He'll get his money, but he's not going to be around the, the, uh, the certainly the facility or anything like that. He's going to sit, and they're basically going to sit around and wait for someone to get hurt. That's the situation. I mean, they had an opportunity at the draft to maybe trade with the Panthers. Panthers weren't interested. The Seattle Seahawks are ready to roll with Drew Locke. That's going to be their quarterback this year who came from Denver. I don't know if anybody's seen Drew Locke play, but he's not an all-star either. And they said, well, we'd roll, rather roll with that. So that just got to tell you what people think of Mayfield. Now, the other issue, too, and Ted will probably bring this up, he's still hurt. Yep. He's not healthy. He can't pass a physical. So I'm not surprised that there has not been any interest in trading or anything like that. But until the guy is fully healthy, I don't, I don't see much happening. Well, what do you, do you think that the uh, lack of a trade market for Baker Mayfield is because it's Baker Mayfield or because the good old boys network of, of uh, football owners are sitting there saying, wait a minute, they just gave this guy $230 million and a guaranteed contract. We're not going to help them out. The heck with that. They're going to eat that 20 million. What do you, what do you think, Sherry? Uh, well, I think there's, there's no doubt that the Browns handled this in the worst way possible. Yes. Why this surprises me. I have no idea, but it does. Um, now what, what should they have done? What did they do wrong? Well, I think I know they wanted Deshaun Watson and I understand that. But you did, you did have Baker Mayfield under contract. You did have him for a huge salary. I just, I just don't see, 
I don't see how you could have made that move. I don't know if it was smart to make that move. And and then, you know, from what I heard that all went down, who knows what's true and what's not, but they had, you know, that Deshaun had walked away and said no deal. If they came back with more to get him in this situation um, that they were in with Mayfield already, and they knew that was going to put them in a horrible um, financial situation as far as paying out his contract and then trying to figure out a way to unload him. I don't know. It just, it just felt like the wrong timing to me. And then, then you add in all of Deshaun's legal troubles and it just, it just doesn't seem like it was the right move for the Browns at this time in my very, very uneducated opinion. (laughs) So, so you think that their mistake was going after Deshaun Watson at all? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and here's why I say that. Yes. Because actually I don't hate Baker Mayfield. Um, I, I thought he was hurt. Yes. He had a horrible season, um, but he had, you know, he had shown um, some potential in the seasons before I, I, I didn't think they should have given up, given up on him this year, especially since he played hurt and was known to be hurt. So I just didn't think it was the right move altogether, but that's just me. I kind of got the sense and sure. I think you make some great points. I kind of got the sense that they were trying to set him up for this during the season. I mean, I'm not trying to be conspiracy guy, but you keep rolling out a guy who can't lift his arm, who can't make plays. You have a quality backup in case Keenum and they never played him unless they they taped an aspirin to it. It should have been fine. Yeah, I don't on. know. The other you thing that harness. could happen too, and, and this is something, you know, once again, I do think, I think the best situation that the Browns could do is cut them, move on. You have, you know, I think they have the second lowest payroll right now, even with Mayfield on the squad um, in the NFL. So you have money to, you know, to hang on to, you're going to have to eat the 18 million. You're either going to have to do that, just cut them or find a team that has some interest and you're going to have to pay some guaranteed money with that. Yeah. The other thing, too, that could happen, and this is one thing that knowing Baker Mayfield, to him, it's more important to be in the spotlight, to certainly, you know, have his face on TV. He's got his commercials and all that. He can defer some of his guaranteed money and give that up and say, all right, if it's going to help me to play for another team, I'll give up, you know, six or seven million dollars, something like that. He could do that, too. And as the season gets closer, you might see that situation. But do you think another team would want Baker Mayfield at $10 million for a backup? I don't think he's going to be a starter this year unless somebody gets hurt. So do you, so, so is another team going to pay $10 million or are you saying if he knocks some money off, the Browns would still have to eat some of that money because everything I read was that the Browns don't want to eat any of the money. Yeah. That's why the deal with the Panthers fell through because they they wanted to, they wanted the Panthers to pick up the 18.8 and they said, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. So no, I I think, I think he's going to have to be a backup. He's going to have to go to another organization. He's going to have to do very similar to what Mitch Trubisky is doing right now, playing for the Steelers of basically rolling the dice, see what happens. But the only way that's going to happen for him right now, based on looking at all the starters is a team's going to have to have a quarterback hurt in the preseason during training camp or certainly early part of the season. That's his only option. If not, he might just, they, they might just hang on to him. They might well, the, the team that you just mentioned, the Steelers, I think is one of the reasons why they don't want to cut him because <laughs> the Steelers have a very unsettled quarterback room and they, 
the I think if if he got cut, he would probably t- he would probably pay the Steelers to let him play for them <laughs> and play the Browns twice a year, or yeah. or some other team in the AFC North because I think he, um, you know, he certainly has a bad taste in his mouth, but. Be that as it may, I guess we'll see what happens. So Sherry doesn't want Deshaun Watson at all. So she she wants to roll with Baker Mayfield into his fifth year and see what happens. So well, well, I mean, we don't even know how many games Deshaun Watson is going to have to sit at this point. We don't know uh, if he'll have to sit. Let's let's. There you go. Okay. All right. To be fair, and but I'm not defending what how- he did. I'm just pointing no, out. No, no, no. I know. But, but they're like, what, 24 cases or something? I'm imagining 22, he's going to have 22. Oh, 22. Please, don't, okay. don't exaggerate. Let's, <laughs> let's, uh... Okay. So uh, so he's going to have uh, – I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's going to have to sit some <laughs> this season. But we don't know what that's going to be. Um, it, you know, I just feel like it's a bad situation all around. Now, if, if Deshaun Watson brings – takes the Browns to the Super Bowl, I will gladly be wrong. But, yeah. uh, but who well, knows? we'll, we'll I think see. the problem the NFL faces is that if none of these cases get adjudicated before the start of the season and they suspend him, what are they suspending the guy for? He has no criminal charges. Nothing is, he hasn't been found guilty of anything. So that's the, and they can say they did their independent investigation all they want. That's, that's going to create controversy, but yeah, whatever the case, uh, We'll wait and see, and uh, we'll, we'll come up with another uh, fine uh, sports topic for Cleveland sports. Maybe we'll talk about the monsters next time, Sherry. So play to something that you know about. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you're going to have to find someone else for that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who the monsters are? Uh, are they the hockey team? They are the hockey team. That's well The done. minor league job, hockey Sherry. team. <laughs> they just finished their season, so it'll go. be a while before we have to talk about them. But uh, – Lots more uh, Browns activity coming up. Maybe we'll talk some Indian. Let me get the swear jar out here. Yep. Uh, the Guardians or the uh, the Cavaliers. Uh, maybe yeah. we'll talk about them at some point. All right, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you. Overachiever segment, Ted. Yeah. And it's not us, but it is Walter Authorman of Brazil. He now holds a Guinness World Record because he celebrated his 100th birthday. Okay. But the record is for his employment. His Okay. His employment. Mr. Authorman has been working for the same textile company. This is unbelievable. For 84 years. Wow. He started there in 1938 at the age of 15. Oh the man goodness. has been working for 84 years. 84 years. It's a long time. That is, that is deserving of the Chuck Knoll speech that he gave to Mike <laughs> Webster. You've had a hell of a run. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. A hell of a run. Wow. Uh, well, if there ever was an overachiever, that's it. Time for our Cleveland calendar, and that, of course, we bring in 
Jennifer Brazovich from Destination Cleveland. And Jennifer, we haven't talked to you since the Dingus Day activities. So obviously that was a great time. I know a lot of people had the opportunity to take part of that. But now it seems like the weather is nice. There's probably many more activities that people would like to do outside. Talk to us about some of the things that are coming up in the Cleveland area. Yeah, it feels like a, a whole new season now from the last time we talked. I feel like the last time we talked, it was like still kind of snowy and rainy and cold. And now hopefully it's beautiful for the year. Um, and I am already beginning my training for Dingus Day 2023. So um, I'll keep you guys tuned on that. Um, but yeah, it, it's May. And um, May is not only like a start to the spring and summer season here in Cleveland, but it is also a AAPI month, which is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Um, so that's an awesome way to celebrate some of, you know, that continued diversity that we have here in Cleveland. Um, and when it comes to the contributions by residents of the Asian Pacific Islander community here, um, a lot of people probably associate it with Asiatown, but Asiatown is really just the beginning here in Cleveland. Um, so we're really encouraging people this month, um, all year round, like get out, explore the history, the food, the traditions um, of this local community. So one of the ways that you can do that, the best way probably that you can experience everything in the Asian community is by attending the Cleveland Asian Festival. That's coming up in just a few weeks here, May 21st and 22nd, and that's going to be right in the heart of Asia Town. Um, this is a really incredible event, and they haven't been able to hold it in person like many events here because of COVID. Um, so it's going to be a really big year this year to have it back in person. Um, hopefully the weather will cooperate and it'll just be a beautiful two days out there. But it's an outdoor event right there in the St. Clair Superior neighborhood, um, the Asia Town District. Um, it's going to have live shows, culture performances. The Quan Family Lion Dance will be happening, which if you have not had a chance to experience it in person, I will make a quick shameless plug. We have an incredible video that our content team put together all about the history of this family and how they have passed this dance tradition down through generations. So they've been doing it for more than 40 years and they're gonna be performing at the festival. It's a really cool thing to say, to see. Of course, there will also be plenty of cultural food and drink to sample. There's going to be a world marketplace vendor fair. So you can, you know, take home a little bit of, of the festival with you. And there's an Asian pop dance competition and fashion show, which are both new this year. So that should be really fun. Um, like I said, May 21st and 22nd, right over there in the Asia Town District. Just a really great opportunity to go over and explore that area. Um, Asia Town also does offer a walking tour that they have on their website. So even if you're not there that weekend, if you're looking for a way to really get to know the district over there, you can check out their website, do that walking tour and really get to know what's happening over there. Um, and then Western Reserve Historical Society also does have a self-guided driving tour, which will detail the history of Cleveland's first Chinese community, which eventually became that Asia Town district. So a really cool way to experience that community immerse yourself in the culture over there and really get to see all of that heritage and culture firsthand um, during AAPI month. Of course, we cannot talk about AAPI culture without talking about the incredible food. Oh, yes. And do you visit Asia Town often for food? I do, actually, yes. Yeah. There's quite a bit of restaurants that my uh, wife-to-be and I go to quite often. So I highly recommend people to do that. But Jen, tell us more about what they could experience in the different places. It's so cool down yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you're looking for a few different tastes of Asia in one place, Asia Town is the place to be. Uh, you can get dim sum at Lee Wai. I actually just did that like two weeks ago. It was amazing. That's so good. That is uh, it's so such good. a good, and it's such a cool, unique lunch experience. Yes. And I mean, you just, you can sample as much as you want. And, you know, if something comes by and it looks good, try it out. Like, 
It's a really good way to um, immerse yourself in that new cuisine and try something new because it's small plates. Um, and then there's also award-winning pho over at Superior Pho. I know it's getting warm and people might not be in the soup mood, uh, but you can't go wrong with it any time of year. They also have in incredible food that's not soup. So it's a great spot to be year round. And um, LJ Shanghai, actually a different kind of soup. They're known for their soup dumplings, oh. which have got like a cult following here in Cleveland. So definitely some really unique choices over there, but it's not just Asia town. Again, like I said, the, the influence stretches far beyond just Asia town. That's just the tip of the iceberg here. So our neighborhoods and suburbs also have some really incredible food that's inspired by the Asian and Pacific Islander community. Uh, over in West Park Himalayan restaurant, they have a really good lunch buffet that's gonna give you some Indian cuisine and a little bit of that um, Asian influence. Um, I was over there a few months ago. The food is incredible. I ordered off of the menu, but everything on the lunch buffet looks absolutely amazing. And a lot of really good vegetarian choices there too. So if you're looking for vegetarian choices, that's a good choice for you. Um, Banana Blossom Thai cuisine in Ohio City has lunch specials, some build your own curries and rice dishes. Uh, Ken, do you have a sweet tooth? I do, actually. I yeah. love ice cream and cakes. Jen, I like it all. I'm not going to lie. I'm not partial to one thing. I like everything sweet. Yeah, absolutely. Same. absolutely. So you got to check out, if you haven't already, check out Ball Ball Waffle. That's over oh, in I've Asia. heard about this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Really cool, like these, these waffles that are made up of little tiny round balls, and they're, they're made to be picked apart and eaten just one piece at a time. So they have savory options and sweet options. And then Coco's Bakery, which has been a favorite in Asia Town, actually just opened a second location over in Coventry. Their specialties are sweet buns. They've got some Japanese cheesecake and crepes. Again, another great place. Like if you're looking for something savory, something sweet, one-stop shopping right there. You can get some bubble tea and just a really incredible way to support these small businesses here in Cleveland as we celebrate AAPI month. Jen, I am starving right now. Thank I you know. for doing that to me. I appreciate it. As soon as we're done here, I'm going to have to get something to eat. But obviously, as we look ahead, as we have June coming up here in July, if you quickly want to talk about some of the top things in those two months that people can look out for as well, if you could do that, that'd be great. Yeah, we're looking ahead to summer. It's going to be a busy summer here in Cleveland. And so we're excited about that. So there's a lot of really cool things coming up. And we want your listeners to invite their friends and family, come to Cleveland, experience these things with you. So the Cleveland Museum of Art just announced its solstice event will return this year. This is another one's taken pandemic hiatus. That's on June 25th. There'll be live music, DJs, some live art, and then special access to some of the museum's exhibits and galleries. Cleveland Metro Parks also just announced a Sounds of Summer concert series that's going to be held every or every month on Fridays at some of its locations. So it starts the Friday before Memorial Day, one concert a month through the end of September. So a really cool way to get out and experience some of the different metro parks in the area and maybe see some of the parks that you haven't seen before. Juneteenth Freedom Festival, I know we've we've mentioned before, that will return to Malsi on June 18th and plans for that are coming together. It'll be here before we know it. And then if you're looking ahead later in the summer for sports fans, Tennis in the Land will be back at Nautica over in the Flats this August. Cool. This was here last year for the first time. It's incredible. They convert the um, amphitheater and the parking lots nearby into these tennis courts. And it's part of the U.S. Open series. So you've got some really good tennis talent there who are really honing their skills and trying to get those last U.S. Open points before the series begins. Um, and so tickets for that actually just went on sale this week. So tennis fans, sports fans, even if you're just looking for something cool to do, that's a really great option. It'll be here for an entire week in August. That's so cool. Jen, so much information. As you know, I'm a man and I cannot multitask, so I could not write down half the stuff that you said during our interview here. If people want to find out more information about all the different things you talked about, as well as the events in Cleveland, where do they go to find this? Head to thisiscleveland.com. 
And if you head to thisiscleveland.com slash AAPI, that's got everything you need to know about celebrating AAPI Heritage Month here in Cleveland as well. Outstanding information. Jen, we really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for updating us on what's going on in Cleveland. And we look forward to talking to you very soon again. Ted, once again, we are out and about in Northeast Ohio, certainly spending money at many different locations. And I just wanted to kind of thank some of these locations for allowing me in their doors <laughs> and not kicking me out. Yeah. So Sundays have become golf day for Awen and I. We uh, go to Baba Link in Avon. That's a great place. We played golf again, as I mentioned, for uh, Mother's Day. And then our, our tradition is we go to Dover Gardens. You've been to Dover mm. Gardens, Ted? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Detroit Road. Yeah. Outstanding stuff. The great food. Super nice people. They have like a Sunday fun day. It is usually packed on Sunday, so I don't feel as much of a degenerate as I should. Um, <laughs> I talked about Herman's. Forever. What's that? That has been there forever, Dover Garden. Yeah, it has. Yeah, it's a cool place. Yeah, really neat. Uh, I talked about Herman's in Brunswick. Great place. I mm-hmm. mentioned Planet Flag before. Um, Buckeye Beer Engine, obviously. I've spent some time there again. Griffin Cider House. I think this is a place I've talked about before. It's a very nice cocktail bar. They have the most gin of any bar in Ohio. So they made some really great co- craft cocktails. It's on uh, Madison Avenue in Lakewood. Check them out. I met up with uh, a couple of friends at Fatheads Brewery in Middleburg Heights. Great beer, great stuff. My son had a meet, a, one of his last track meets in Brunswick. And so we stopped at Gyro George's. I don't know if that rings a bell. They have a couple of different locations. So we had a really, really good burger there. So that's mm. off to them. I have actually turned into, and you're this already. My second name is Ken Uber. I do a lot oh. of that. I know oh. your name at times is Ted Uber. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Part of my Uber duties, besides taking around children, is I am, you know, certainly I'm trying to do my husbandly duties of taking Edwin to the airport when she goes on trip. So when yeah. she does this, I then try when I pick her up. I try to go to different places that are around, like the airport and stuff like that. So the one place I went to was called the Hydrant. So it was just outside of Berea. It was actually a really cool place. Um, Nice people. They had a band there. The food was very good. I highly recommend it. They had a picture of a Bloody Mary that they have on Sundays. Ted, I think the thing was about as big as my head. I mean, it was just enormous with all this different food on it. So check that out in Berea. And then special thanks for these two courses last week, not kicking me off the course for poor play. Shale Creek, as I mentioned before, and then also Pleasant Valley, hmm. the country club in Medina. So thank you very much, Ted. I, I, I throw, throw this to you as well. We, I, I know you were out and about on Sunday. Did you go out and about at all anywhere else? Well, you <clears throat> if, if you ask me this repeatedly over these uh, different uh, episodes, you're going to find that uh, we have a lot of repeat places. Uh, this week's repeater. Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse for a Monsters game. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Got the last Monsters game of the season. And uh, they, they, the boys had a good time. I believe the Monsters won. Did they, no, no. They lost late in the game. That's right. They lost. Oh, my. Because my wife pointed out that we've never seen them win. <laughs> How about that? That's outstanding. Maybe you're not going to be able to go anymore. I was just going to say, we're going to be blacklisted for for tickets. So 
Yeah, well, that's all about. That's uh, other than that, it's just working in the yard, Ken. Just working. In that's the yard. it. That's you know what? We're all kind of starting to do some of that stuff as the weather's great. But if you have a place that you want to shout out at some point in time, you know how to follow us Instagram or Facebook. Let us know if there's a place that we should go to when we're out and about. Time for another Cleveland history segment, and we can't do that without our Cleveland historian, John Grabowski, who joins us again. And today we're going to talk about what at the time it was built was the second tallest building in the city of Cleveland. And that was kind of by design out of respect for the Terminal Tower. I'm talking about the BP building. And I remember when it was being built that there was, oh my gosh, they can't, you can't have a building bigger than than the terminal tower. And then, of course, years later, Key Tower came in, and uh, it's taller. But at the time, uh, the BP building was, is, and still is, obviously, just a little shorter. John, tell us, why why was there this need for the second large building in downtown Cleveland? And tell us a little bit about the, the thought of, well, it can't be taller than the, than the terminal tower. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting because it was number two for a while and it's now number three. And we'll see what happens when the new Sherwin-Williams headquarters comes up. <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, the point is that that side, that, that eastern side of public square was always the jumping place. I'm going to go in the Wayback Machine. It was, a, it was initially in the 1850s. There was a home there, the Williamson family. The Williamson building was then built there. It was, I believe, 15 stories tall. And next to it, <clears throat> excuse me, next to it was the Cuyahoga building. And these were two remarkable buildings uh, from the early 20th century, late 19th century that were, were on that side of the square. And they were, they were pretty, pretty tony, if you will. The Williamson building was the head, headquarters of a number of real estate firms and a number of law firms for a while. And uh, they stood until um, this Ohio Standard Oil of Ohio the, that part of Rockefeller's empire that, that remained within Cleveland um, decided to build a new headquarters in Cleveland. And um, the one thing I remember is prior to the construction of that building, which opened in 1985, that's the, the new Standard Oil building, uh, the Williamson and Cuyahoga buildings were imploded. That's how they were torn down. <laughs> and uh, and that, that made downtown fairly dusty for a long while after they did that. Uh, but the building was built, and you're right, when, uh, when the plans were out there, there was a hesitancy to make anything taller than uh, Cleveland Union Terminal, Terminal Tower, which I believe is 708 feet. And so they, they kept the, the BP building or this Ohio building or the Standard Oil building had a number of names uh, at, its, I believe, 658 feet. Uh, so it's a, it's a smaller building. I think it's a rather elegant design. It has a nice setback to it. Uh, it did take out some buildings behind it. There were small stores in that that were behind it. The parking garage took over those areas. Uh, but it's kind of a nice focal point as, as you see Superior and Euclid Avenue sort of coalesce. Um, so, you know, it is, it is the headquarters of Standard Oil and then Standard Oil becomes a, a part of British Petroleum. And uh, so Ohio uh, gets rebranded as BP, I believe in the early 1990s. And at that time, the building was called the BP Building, uh, the BP America Building, or the BP America Tower. Uh, but then in 1898, uh, 1998, I'm always once 
century before 1998, uh, British Petroleum decides to move their American headquarters to Chicago. And so that building then moves, becomes uh, 200 public square. And, and right now it is the, uh, the Huntington Bank Shares building. So it's the Huntington building. So it's, it's gone through a number of iterations. But what that says to me, and, and in a, a way, it reflects the vicissitudes of Cleveland. In the, you know, in the 80s, there, there was a really strong move to try to get Cleveland moving again to get new buildings constructed. And we'll be talking sometime about default in the 1970s in Cleveland. And so convincing, uh, convincing Standard Oil to build this building uh, was a major, major feat. And, uh, and there was a lot of political jockeying to get it built. Uh, nevertheless, it was the major construction pro project in Cleveland. And it's, it's hard to imagine the, the joy there was to see something brand new going up on public square at that time. And, and, you know, Key Corp building would be another building. And then there was gonna be a Cleveland Trust building where there are parking lots now for the SW building. So public square, which is the oldest, really, not the oldest segment of Cleveland, it's, it's the symbol of Cleveland was having all these new buildings. I think BP was there at the start of the rehabilitation of the square. So John, the question I have is obviously when they design these different buildings and things like that, and obviously the, the look is, I think, absolutely amazing, have all these different tenants when they put these buildings up, the idea, and I think for many of our younger listeners, the idea is that the whole building is not necessarily going to be one company, that they're going to have different facets in there and things like that. When they put this building up, one, how long did the process take? And then two, you talked about some of the different companies. Are there other types of industries in there, to your knowledge, or that have been in that building that are kind of famous? I, you know, I don't know offhand, Ken. I, you know, I know it took, you know, well over a year or so to get the building up. It took a, a long time to get the plans in place. But you're right. It, it was not only Standard Oil people who were there, uh, because any company that builds a building that size is not going to fill it, and it's going to rent space. So the buildings become sort of uh, income earners for the company, the ownership of the building. And the thing here is that, that, you know, at that point, they felt that they could fill this up with businesses and, and they, they did, you know, and, and everything around the square as it grew the same thing. Uh, that, that has begun to change as we, we've seen uh, things happen. We've seen a lot, a lot of buildings around the square, certainly not BP, and not Key Bank becoming uh, residences. You know, there are eight, eight floors, I believe eight or nine floors of um, apartments in the Terminal Tower, which was once the premier uh, what I would call business building in Cleveland. Uh, you know, across the street, the Illuminating Company building, which was really the first new skyscraper built in Cleveland after the terminal had been completed in the 1930s. You know, that comes up in the 1950s. So, yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an investment. Uh, and I think everybody is still holding their breath right now to see how business has been changed because of COVID. Yeah. And how much mm -hmm. of it's going to be done at home and how much of it's going to be done in the office. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't follow real estate very deeply, uh, but I, you know, I sense as I see many structures in downtown Cleveland being converted to residences, that that seems to be where things are going. And I'm not projecting that what is now the Huntington building is going to be residences, but it could be. Yeah, it could be. Yep. And mm. uh, the irony here for me is that public square, when it initially was, laid out and people first began moving into Cleveland in some numbers in the 1830s, 
uh, it was small businesses, a church, and there were residences around Public Square. People lived in what is now downtown. Yeah. And I may have mentioned this in one of our previous sessions, but you know, this downtown is reverting to what it was before, uh, the residential and business area. Very interesting. Well, John, thanks for the information on the BP building, the Huntington building, <laughs> 200 Public Square, many yeah. names, but... People know which building it is, that's for sure. And yeah, uh, yeah. So one right by the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. That's it. Yep. All right, John, thank you very much. The most trusted name in journalism, Klops Clips. Ken, here's the news. Hope you're ready. Firefighters in Germany... Got an interesting call from a high school. The teachers there were unable to open a safe. The safe contained the final year exam. The firefighters showed up. The lock was jammed. They sawed it open, allowing the students to take said exam. The teachers cheered. The students had mixed reactions. I can imagine that. Yeah. So, saving the day. Cops in Maine called to a hotel for a report of a disturbance being caused by a drunk guy. When they arrived, they found a guy sitting in a chair with a blanket over himself trying to hide. (laughs) That was his disguise. Police took a photo of the man trying to hide, shared the incident on Facebook saying, quote, here at the Belfast Police Department, we've seen some crafty ways of hiding from the police. This, unfortunately, is not one of them. Uh, you can't see me. You can't see me because I yep. can't see you. Oh, my gosh. A Texas antique dealer shopping at a Goodwill store spotted a marble bust on the floor under a table. She bought the 52-pound bust for $34.99. And then she went and researched it and discovered it was a 2,000-year-old Roman piece depicting Drusus the Elder. Oh, my gosh. How about that? Now it's in a museum. Wow. How does yeah. that happen? I, how, does, how does that happen? That's insane. That's crazy. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, yeah. You can see in some of the pictures, it's a beautiful white marble Roman bust of a head. It's got a yellow price sticker on it. Oh, my gosh. Yep. School board member here in Ohio made a big boo-boo. Darby Bodie of the Lakota School Board made a post on social media trying to direct people to scarletine.com. Now, that is a site that offers, quote, sex ed for the real world. Okay. Unfortunately, she misspelled the site, and the link that she shared sent visitors to a porn site. Oh, no. Oh, no, the poor lady. She says oh. it was an honest mistake. Oh. Yep. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a, that's a different kind of education, gets. I guess. That's, yeah, that's. Uh, I bet you that was eye-opening for many people. <laughs> Johnny, what are you looking at? <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay. Came from the school board. Yeah, yeah, must be okay. All right. Well, anyhow, there. That's this week's collection of Klopp's Clips. Now, a woman's perspective. 
Of course, women don't work as hard as men. They get it right the first time. This has been A Woman's Perspective. Coming to the end of episode 88. Lots of interesting in, uh, information here. Got some Baker Mayfield talk. Lots of sports in this in this show, Ken. And uh, we did have a lot. Yeah, you, you're right. Uh, if you want to be educated, scarletine.com. Yeah, Don't that's not spell that. Yeah. And then special no. thanks to uh Connie Laux as well. Yeah. Um, great interview. She's I mean, once again, if you've published 65 books, you must know what you're doing. So I would say so. Pretty impressive. It was really a joy to talk to her. But and uh, the next show we will drop in a couple of weeks our guest is going to be a gentleman by the name of ben marthy ben is a very talented i call him a young man because he's not that far in age from me uh Uh music singer songwriter played in a band previously started doing it again um lives a very interesting life he works at the cleveland clinic you can hear more about his his job and what he does and all that but uh, he's had some very interesting experiences he's a foodie he makes his own beer but just a really, really nice guy who, uh, who's got a lot of different gigs coming up in the Northeast Ohio area for his music. And uh, we'll hear more about Van Arlo, which is the name of his band. And uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, I think it's, it's really cool. I think people enjoy it. Now, what is a foodie? Is that you have to make food in order to be a foodie? At the end of the day, you are somebody that actually, well, I consider myself a foodie. And as yeah. you know, Ted, my yeah. ability to make food is not really good. So I, I consume food and a lot right. of it. So we're foodies. My doctor. So yeah, we're foodies. We're people that, okay. you know, a lot all of those people, you know, certainly follow these different foods and post a lot of, about food and all that kind of stuff. And food, Ben has been a guy who likes to cook and he's, I mean, he's the stuff he makes is really, really cool. So he's got some really cool pictures on his Instagram site and all that. So he considers himself a foodie and it's someone that just really loves food and likes to talk about it. That's basically what it is. Hmm. So. All right. Well, now, before we go, I want to get, I want to touch on this real quick. This is, this threw me for a loop. I heard about this. I think you heard about this too, Ken. Uh, there is a situation and apparently this is across the country now where, you know, we've had people who are born a man identifying as a woman, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Well, now we've got kids in school. I'm, going to say this in a loud and clear voice because this is i'm not making this up kids in school who are identifying as dogs or cats yes and 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 schools are apparently um uh accepting this uh uh i don't know i have a clip here from a school board meeting in michigan and uh, a mom brings this up. So let's let's take a listen to this. Uh, you can hear about these are called these kids that do this or people who do this are called furries, furries. So let's talk about fury, furries. <laughs> it was addressed by a child uh, a couple months ago that they are put in an environment where there are kids that are that identify as a furry, a cat or a dog, whatever. And so yesterday I heard that at least one of our schools in our town has a, in one of the unisex bathrooms, a litter box for the kids that identify as cats. And um, I am really disturbed by that. 
And I, I will do some more investigation on that. I know it's going on nationwide. I know it is. It's part of the agenda that's being pushed. I don't, I don't even want to understand it. But I think that people need to be aware of it because I am really upset as a parent that my child is put in an environment like that. That's crazy. Kids are using a litter box, Ken. That's crazy. I know there's a lot of things, and both you and I could speak to this because we have younger children. To have discussions with them about things, I was made aware of this not too long ago from, from a friend, once again, on our show, one of the rules, no names, please. Yeah. And inform me that at this friend's daughter's school, that there was as it was talked about furries and same situation in this school with litter boxes. And then basically a lot of these kids will wear ears. So they are recognized as, you know, as a cat. And and this is in Northern Ohio, right? This is in Northern Ohio. That is correct. So it's, it's really, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, once again, as many people know, I try to say, stay as PC as I can. You know, I, I support everybody. I want to love everyone. It's really difficult as a parent. If I have to have this discussion with my kids to talk about, you know, respecting others and all that. And, and here's this person who has basically said that they're a cat or a dog. That's really confusing for kids. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. It's, 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 it's kind of crazy. So. In I know we don't like to be terribly controversial here on the show, but that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And the fact that a school, um, I don't know how else to say it, supports it by putting a litter box in there. Give me a break. Yeah, it's, I don't, I, I mean, that's what message are you sending? I guess I can understand what the school's trying to do. Cause they're, you know, there's, oh, they want to avoid everybody. a lawsuit. I get that. Right. That's exactly but, right. But I mean, come on. Well, I think a lot of this, Ted, in all honesty, these types of discussions, when you're talking about this, this this has to be talked about at home. I mean, my daughter loves dogs. Guy okay? loves dogs. Any dog that's around, she loves to. If she ever came to me and said, I think I want to be a dog. That, that's I mean, we're going to have that discussion. Uh, me as a parent, I, I'm not going to be super comfortable with that. And I'm yeah. certainly going to yeah. discourage that to an extent. Other parents, you know, certainly might have a more open mind. And I don't think, you know, if that's what you choose to do, that's fine. For me, that's just not my my cup of tea. I don't think that's a healthy situation for the kids or anyone around them. That's where I'm at. Well, uh, I'm just shaking my head. Furries. Yeah, I I couldn't believe this. I I heard about this a couple of weeks ago from actually from two different people. And I know you and I did some research on this. That's how we found the school board quote. And it, it is a national thing. There's, it's just a national thing that, that, that kids are doing in school. They're, they're basically saying their cats are dogs. Okay. What did Mike Trivisano say? What was his I'm famous living line? in a world I don't understand. It's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to start telling people that I'm a good-looking young man. That's how I identify. Good-looking. And I think that's correct. Young man. Yep. <clears throat> Anybody wants to pictures of you that? from... That's how I identify. And you keep taking pictures like you did on uh, Holy Communion Sunday. I mean, my gosh, there's no doubt about that, sir. Hey, let me no just doubt. say my photoshopping skills have not diminished. <laughs> yeah, all about the Snapchat. Yeah. Well, Ted, thanks to all our guests. Once again, thanks for all the listeners. Appreciate it. Got some great shows coming up here uh, in June. Some wonderful people that we're talking to, and I think you really enjoy it. 
And just one last thing, we're just two middle-aged men in Cleveland. Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland is sponsored by Westminster AV, custom audiovisual packages for all occasions. We've endorsed JP, right? J.D. Mandel.